This is Channel AB3, the podcast home of me, Al Bruno III. I'm going to share with you some fiction, some fun, and anything else I can think of. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of the Channel AB3 podcast. I'd like to start out this episode by once again talking about one of the Phantasm movies. This time, we're going to talk about Phantasm 3. Phantasm. The delusion of a disordered mind. A phantom. A spirit. A ghost. For most of his life, a young man has been pursued by a sinister force. Now he must learn the secret of the ultimate evil. Now it is time for you to come back to me. Phantasm 3 was released seven years after Phantasm 2. Phantasm 3 only had a two-week theatrical run. It was released in two cities, Baton Rouge and St. Louis. Now, in both those cities, Phantasm 3 was the highest-grossing film for that two-week period. After this period, Phantasm 3 was released direct-to-video. And, as per the Los Angeles Times, Phantasm 3 was one of the top 100 highest-selling direct-to-video titles. So it just goes to show there was definitely an appetite for these movies. Now, on to the film itself. Mike, Jody, and Reggie are all back, and as always, are very engaging. I was particularly glad to see A. Michael Baldwin back as Mike. Don't get me wrong, James Lagasse did a great job in Phantasm 2, but having the old crew together just feels right. This movie picks up right where the last one left off, but Liz, Mike's psychic love interest from the previous installment, is killed in the very first scene. Normally, this kind of thing drives me crazy, but by now it is very evident that each Phantasm movie is as much its own contained universe as it is a sequel. So I guess the rule for Phantasm movies is you should never get attached to the new faces. But that's a darn shame, because the two new heroes introduced in this movie are pretty awesome. And the characters I'm talking about are Tim and Rocky. Rocky is a female soldier slash martial arts expert. She is equally good at fighting off the killer spheres with nunchucks as she is at fending off the romantic advances of Reggie. And then there's Tim. Tim is about 10 years old and the sole survivor of the tall man's attack on his family. The way he deals with the looters menacing him will make you appreciate the gentle and forgiving nature of Kevin McAllister. Of course, Angus Scrim is back as the tall man, and he gets a lot more dialogue and a little more to do, besides standing around and glaring menacingly. Although, if you're going to pay someone to stand around and glare menacingly, Angus Scrim is your man. 
The tall man is still fixated on Mike, and this time there is some serious Emperor Palpatine, Luke Skywalker vibe going on between these two. I'll be honest and tell you that all of this lays the groundwork for a mythology and plot twist that is never truly followed up on in a satisfactory way in the sequels. But with Phantasm movies, it's never the destination, it's the journey. Phantasm 3, like all the sequels, is a very picaresque affair. Our heroes go from one set piece to another, alternately chasing and then being chased by the tall man. But between all that chaos and mayhem, each of the characters in this film gets a great moment or two. I don't know why, but this one always felt a little bit like a TV pilot to me. Phantasm the TV series? Oh, if only. Reggie Bannister is particularly great in this film, stepping up to become the de facto protagonist. He has a way of bringing a kind of everyman gravitas to some scenes and a sense of slapstick to others. It puts me in the mind of Bruce Campbell. Phantasm 3 doesn't have quite the same standalone energy as Part 2, but it is still an entertaining watch for the uninitiated. Much as I love Phantasm 4 and 5, you can't really say that about those films. If you get a chance, catch Phantasm 3. Our first story is not in the public domain, and it was not written by an author who's been dead for 95 years. At least I hope not, because we speak on Twitter on a fairly regular basis, and the theological implications of such a thing would be staggering. The author's online handle is Maz in Leeds. Her real name is Maria Protopadaki-Smith, but I usually don't use that name because I'm terrified of mispronouncing it. Anyway, back around 2009, I was participating in a project called Friday Flash, and thankfully it involved me keeping my shirt on. What the Friday Flash project was is that various authors online would get together and write 1,000-word story per week, a flash fiction, and then they would share it via Twitter and via a central website. That project helped birth some of the stories of mine that you've read or heard before, as well as helped me really hone my skills to be less of a rambling author. If you notice, I'm still more of a rambling podcast host, but there you are. I got time to fill. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, Mazin Leeds wrote a story called Late Bloomer. The story just struck me. It enchanted me. I love this story, and I always said to myself that someday I want to get this story adapted for audio. And as you can see, it only took me over 10 years, but better late than never. Allow me to present to you the story Late Bloomer by Maz in Leeds. Late Bloomer by Maz in Leeds. Gods do not always beget gods. Well, it is rare, but sometimes it happens that the union of two perfectly ordinary gods can result in a mortal child. I fear I might be such a child. I'm 14, uh, not far from 15 in fact, but my back is still bare. A few months ago there was another in my group of peers who had not sprouted yet either, so no one was really worried. Late bloomers, they called us. It will come, they said. You will sprout when you least expect it, they promised. But my back is still bare. I sit with the rest of the boys, as I always do, but it's now beginning to be awkward. 
Their jokes about my tardiness stopped not long after Tarion finally proved himself a mortal. No one jostles me any more in our friendly scuffles for fear of touching my smooth back. Still, we remain friends. There will likely come a time soon when the adults will force the divide upon us, but until then I savour the company of the boys I've grown up with. We sit in the courtyard, a little removed from the hustle and bustle of the mortals tending to a mortal's needs, and I see her walking past. She smiles at me. She does not need to bow before me. I have the status of a mortal as I have not yet sprouted. She curtsies to the rest of the group as is proper and wanders over to the market stalls. Her name is Estria, and she's my mother's handmaid. We found out at the last Midsummer Fair that she's a remarkably talented archer, not only for a mortal, but even by immortal standards. Since then, at my mother's insistence, she discarded some of her handmaid duties in favour of instructing me in the art of the bow and arrow. She's my age, and yesterday, as she was helping me adjust my elbow for a shot, she overwhelmed me with the warmth of her breath against my ear and the yielding breast that brushed against my arm. I have all the other steerings, you see, all except the one that I so anxiously wait for. She makes her way around the stalls, picking up delicacies for my mother, smiling at all those fortunate enough to cross her path. I watch her make her way back across from the market, the sunlight dancing with the myriad of hues in her hair. But my reverie is cut short by the sight of the hateful Campion crossing the courtyard. He was, to the annoyance of all of us, the first of our peer group to sprout. He's the kind of boy that takes pleasure in others' discomfort. He's the only one who still brings attention to my unadorned back by making scathing jokes. Since he can no longer lord it over the others, as they too have now almost fully sprouted, he makes me the butt of his jokes with unfailing regularity. The others have started shouting him down about it, though, so he needs to find new ways to torture me. He's seen how I look at Estria, and now as the father he needs. He prances up to her and grabs her by the waist. He moves his other hand inappropriately over her body. She's terrified, but can do nothing. He's a god, after all, and she's but a mortal. I run across the courtyard, propelled as much by rage as by the twin bursts of pain shooting from my back. As I run, my shoulder blades are on fire, and by the time I reach Campion, I'm almost fully sprouted. This is unheard for and will be talked of for generations, but for now, my only concern is the girl. I grab hold of Campion's throat and squeeze. He releases Estra and turns meek and apologetic at the sight of the storm cloud in my face. I push him away and turn to Estria, thrown off balance by my new appendages. I realise that this is one of the many things I will have to get used to. I watch in despair as she averts her gaze from mine and curtsies respectfully from behind the barrier that has suddenly been brought up between us. And all that I want is to be mortal again. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> okay, then.
Our next story is written by one of the masters of modern horror and one of my favorite neurotic racists. That's right. This is an H.P. Lovecraft story. May I present to you The Picture in the House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X.org. Recorded by me, Glenn Hallstrom, also known as Smokestack Jones. Smokestackjones at gmail.com. You'll also find my blog at toomuchjohnson.blogspot.com. The Picture in the House by H.B. Lovecraft Searchers after horror haunt strange far places, for them are the catacombs of Tome and the carven mausolea of the nightmare countries. They climb to the moonlit towers of ruined Rhine castles and falter down black cobweb steps beneath the scattered stones of forgotten cities in Asia. The haunted wood and the desolate mountain are their shrines, and they linger around the sinister monoliths of uninhabited islands. But the true epicure of the terrible, to whom a new thrill of unalterable ghastliness is the chief end and justification of existence, esteems most of all the ancient, lonely farmhouses of backwoods New England. For there the dark elements of strength, solitude, grotesqueness, and ignorance combine to form the perfection of the hideous. Most horrible of all the sights are the little unpainted wooden houses remote from traveled ways, usually squatted upon some damp grassy slope or leaning against some gigantic outcropping of rock. Two hundred years and more they have leaned or squatted there, while the vines have crawled and the trees have swelled and spread. They are almost hidden now in lawless luxuriances of green and guardian shrouds of shadow, but the small paned windows still stare shockingly as if blinking through a lethal stupor which wards off madness by dulling the memory of unutterable things. In such houses have dwelt generations of strange people whose like the world has never seen. Seized with a gloomy and fanatical belief which exiled them from their kind, their ancestors sought the wilderness for freedom. There are scions of a conquering race indeed flourished free from the restrictions of their fellows, but cowered in an appalling slavery to the dismal phantasms of their own minds. Divorced from the enlightenment of civilization, the strength of these Puritans turned into singular channels, and in their isolation, morbid self-repression, and struggle for life with relentless nature, there came to them dark, furtive traits from the prehistoric depths of their cold northern heritage. By necessity practical and by philosophy stern, these folks were not beautiful in their sins. Erring as all mortals must, they were forced by their rigid code to seek concealment above all else, so that they came to use less and less taste in what they concealed. Only the silent, sleepy, staring houses in the backwoods can tell all that has lain hidden since the early days, and they are not communicative being loath to shake off the drowsiness which helps them forget. Sometimes one feels that it would be merciful to tear down these houses, for they must often dream. It was to a time-battered edifice of this description that I was driven one afternoon in November 1896 by a rain of such chilling copiousness that any shelter was preferable to exposure. I had been traveling for some time amongst the people of the Miskatonic Valley in quest of certain genealogical data and from the remote, devious, and problematical nature of my course had deemed it convenient to employ a bicycle, despite the lateness of the season. 
Now I found myself in an apparently abandoned road, which I had chosen as the shortest cut to Arkham, overtaken by the storm at a point far from any town, and confronted with no refuge save the antique and repellent wooden building which blinked with bleared windows from between two huge leafless elms near the foot of a rocky hill. Distant though it is from the remnant of the road, the house nonetheless impressed me unfavorably the very moment I espied it. Honest, wholesome structures do not stare at travelers so slyly and hauntingly, and in my genealogical researches I had encountered legends of a century before which biased me against places of this kind. Yet the force of the elements was such as to overcome my scruples, and I did not hesitate to wheel my machine up the weedy rise through the closed door which seemed at once so suggestive and secretive. I had somehow taken it for granted that the house was abandoned, yet as I approached I was not so sure, for though the walks were indeed overgrown with weeds, they seemed to retain their nature a little too well to argue complete desertion. Therefore, instead of trying the door, I knocked, feeling as I did so a trepidation I could scarcely explain. As I waited on the rough, mossy rock which served as a doorstep, I glanced at the neighboring windows in the panes of the transom above me and noticed that, although old, rattling, and almost opaque with dirt, they were not broken. The building, then, must still be inhabited, despite its isolation and general neglect. However, my rapping evoked no response, so after repeating the summons, I tried the rusty latch and found the door unfastened. Inside was a little vestibule with walls from which the plaster was falling, and through the doorway there came a faint but peculiarly hateful odor. I entered, carrying my bicycle, and closed the door behind me. Ahead rose a narrow staircase flanked by a small door probably leading to the cellar, while to the left and right were closed doors leading to rooms on the ground floor. Leaning my cycle against the wall, I opened the door at the left and crossed into a small, low-ceilinged chamber, but dimly lighted by its two dusty windows and furnished in the barest and most primitive possible way. It appeared to be a kind of sitting-room, for it had a table and several chairs and an immense fireplace above which ticked an antique clock on a mantel. Books and papers were very few, and in the prevailing gloom I could not readily discern the titles. What interested me was the uniform air of archaism as displayed in every visible detail. Most of the houses in the region I had found rich in relics of the past, but here the antiquity was curiously complete, for in all the room I could not discover a single article of definitely post-revolutionary date. Had the furnishings been less humble, the place would have been a collector's paradise. As I surveyed its quaint apartment, I felt an increase in that aversion first excited by the bleak exterior of the house. Just what it was that I feared or loathed, I could by no means define, but something in the whole atmosphere seemed redolent of unhallowed age, of unpleasant crudeness, and of secrets which should be forgotten. I felt disinclined to sit down, and wandered about examining the various articles which I had noticed. The first object of my curiosity was a book of medium size lying upon the table and presenting such an antiluvian aspect that I marveled at beholding it outside a museum or library. It was bound in leather with metal fittings, and it was in an excellent state of preservation, being altogether an unusual sort of volume to encounter in an abode so lonely. When I opened it to the title page, my wonder grew even greater, 
for it provided to be nothing less rare than Pigfetta's account of the Congo region written in Latin from the notes of the sailor Lopex and printed in Frankfurt in 1598. I had often heard of this work, with its curious illustrations by the brothers de Bry, hence for a moment forgot my uneasiness and my desire to turn the pages before me. The engravings were indeed interesting, drawn wholly from imagination and careless descriptions, and represented negroes with white skins and Caucasian features. Nor would I soon have closed the book had not an exceedingly trivial circumstance upset my tired nerves and revived my sensation of disquiet. What annoyed me was the merely persistent way in which the volume tended to fall open of itself at plate twelve, which represented in gruesome detail a butcher's shop of the cannibal Aztecs. I experienced some shame at my susceptibility to do so slight a thing, but the drawing nevertheless disturbed me, especially in connection with some adjacent passages descriptive of Aztec gastronomy. I had turned to a neighboring shelf and was examining its meager literary contents an eighteenth-century Bible of Pilgrim's Progress of like period illustrated with grotesque woodcuts and printed by the almanac-maker Isaiah Thomas, the writing bulk of Cotton Mather's Magnalia Christi Americana, and a few other books of evidently equal age, when my attention was aroused by the unmistakable sound of walking in the room overhead. At first astonished and startled, considering the lack of response to my recent knocking at the door, I immediately afterward concluded that the walker had just awakened from a sound sleep, and listened with less surprise as the footsteps sounded on the creaking stairs. The tread was heavy, yet seemed to contain a curious quality of cautiousness, a quality which I disliked the more because the tread was heavy. When I had entered the room I had shut the door behind me. Now, after a moment of silence during which the walker may have been inspecting my bicycle in the hall, I heard a fumbling at the latch and saw the paneled portal swing open again. In the doorway stood a person of such singular appearance that I should have exclaimed aloud but for the restraints of good breeding. Old, white-bearded, and ragged, my host possessed a countenance and physique which inspired equal wonder and respect. His height could not have been less than six feet, and despite a general air of age and poverty, he was stout and powerful in proportion. His face, almost hidden by a long beard which grew high on his cheeks, seemed abnormally ruddy and less wrinkled than one might expect, while over a high forehead fell a shock of white hair, little thinned by the years. His blue eyes, though a trifle bloodshot, seemed inexplicably keen and burning, but for his horrible unkemptness, the man would have been as distinguished-looking as he was impressive. This unkemptness, however, made him offensive despite his face and figure. Of what his clothing consisted, I could hardly tell, for it seemed to me no more than a mass of tatters surmounting a pair of high, heavy boots, and his lack of cleanliness surpassed description. The appearance of this man, and the instinctive fear he inspired, prepared me for something like enmity, so that I almost shuddered through surprise and a sense of uncanny incongruity, when he motioned me to a chair and addressed me in a thin, weak voice full of fawning respect and ingratiating hospitality. His speech was very curious, an extreme form of Yankee dialect. I had thought long extinct, and I studied it closely, as he sat down opposite me for conversation. "'Catched in the rain, be ye,' he greeted. "'Glad ye was nigh the house and hidden the sense to come right in. I calculate I was asleep, else I'd heard ye. 
ain't as young as I used to be, and I need a powerful sight of naps nowadays. Traveling fur? I ain't seen many folks for long this road since they took off the Arkham stage. I replied that I was going to Arkham and apologized for my rude entry into his domicile, whereupon he continued, Glad to see ye, young sir. New faces is scarce a count around here. I ain't got much to cheer me up these days. Guess you hail from Boston, don't you? I never been there, but I can tell a town man when I see him. We had one for D-Stick schoolmaster in 84, but he quit sudden, and no one ever heard of him since. Here the old man lapsed into a kind of chuckle and made no explanation when I questioned him. He seemed to be in an aboundingly good humor, yet to possess those eccentricities which one might guess from his grooming. For some time he rambled on with an almost feverish geniality when it struck me to ask him how he came by so rare a book as Pigfetta's Regnum Congo. The effect of this volume had not left me, and I felt a certain hesitancy in speaking of it, but curiosity overmastered all the vague fears which I had steadily accumulated since my first glimpse of the house. To my relief, the question did not seem an awkward one, for the old man answered freely and volubly. Well, that African book? Captain Ebenezer Holt traded me that in 68. Him as was killed in the war. Something about the name Ebenezer Holt caused me to look up sharply. I had encountered it in my genealogical work, but not in any record since the Revolution. I wondered if my host could help me in the task at which I was laboring, and resolved to ask him about it later on. He continued, Ebenezer was on a Salem merchantman for years, and picked up a slight of queer stuff at every port. He got this in London, I guess. He used to like to buy things at the shops. I was up to his house once, on the hill, trading horses. When I see this book, I relish the pictures. So it gave it to me in a swap. It's a queer book. Here. Let me get my spectacles. The old man fumbled among his rags, producing a pair of dirty and amazingly antique glasses with small octagonal lenses and steel bows. Donning these, he reached for the volume on the table and turned the pages lovingly. Ebenezer could read a little of this. It is Latin, but I can't. Had two or three schoolmasters read me a bit. And Passion Clark, whom they say got drowned at the pond. Can you make anything out in it? I told him that I could, and translated for his benefit a paragraph near the beginning. If I erred, he was not scholar enough to correct me, for he seemed childishly pleased at my English version. His proximity was becoming rather obnoxious, yet I saw no way to escape without offending him. I was amused at the childish fondness of this ignorant old man for the pictures in a book he could not read, and wondered how much better he could read the few books in English which adorned the room. This revelation of simplicity removed much of the ill-defined apprehension I had felt, and I smiled as my host rambled on. Queer how pictures can set a body thinking. Take this in here near the front. You ever see trees like that with big leaves flapping on over and down? And them men, they can't be niggers. They do beat all, kind of like Injuns, I guess, even if they be in Africa. Some of these critters looks like monkeys, or half monkeys and half men, but I never heard of nothing like this And Here he pointed to a fabulous creature of the artist, which one might describe as a sort of dragon with the head of an alligator. But now I'll show you the best one, now over here in the middle. The old man's speech grew a trifle thicker, and his eyes assumed a brighter glow, 
but his fumbling hands, though seemingly clumsier than before, were entirely adequate to their mission. The book fell open almost of its own accord, as if from frequent consultation at this place, to the repellent twelfth plate showing a butcher shop amongst the Aztec cannibals. My sense of restlessness returned, though I did not exhibit it. This especially bizarre thing was that the artist had made his Africans look like white men. The limbs and quarters hanging about the walls of the shop were ghastly, while the butcher with his axe was hideously incongruous. But my host seemed to relish the view as much as I disliked it. What do you think of this? Ain't never seen the like hereabouts, eh? When I see this, I tell Jeb Holt, that's something to stir you up and make your blood tickle. When I read the scripture about slaying, like them midnights was slew, I kind of think things, but ain't got no picture of it. Here a body can see all there is to it. I suppose tis sinful, but ain't we all born living in sin? That feller being chopped gives you quite a tickle every time I look at him. I hate to keep looking at him to see where the butcher cut off his feet. There's the head on that branch with one arm side of it and t'other arms on the side of a meat block. As the man mumbled on in his shocking ecstasy, the expression on his hairy, speckled face became indescribable. But his voice sank rather than mounted. My own sensations can scarcely be recorded. All the terror I had dimly felt before rushed upon me actively and vividly, and I knew that I loathed the ancient and abhorrent creature so near me with an infinite intensity. His madness, or at least his partial perversion, seemed beyond dispute. He was almost whispering now with a huskiness more terrible than a scream, and I trembled as I listened. As I said, "'Tis queer how pictures set you thinking. Do you know, young sir, I'm right set on this in here. After I got this book off Ebb, I used to look at it a lot, especially when I'd hear Passion Clark ranting Sundays in his big wig. Once I tried something funny, here, young sir, don't get scared. All I done was to look at that picture afore I killed a sheep for market. Killing sheep was kinder more fun after looking at it. The tone of the old man sang very low, sometimes becoming so faint that his words were hardly audible. I listened to the rain, and to the rattling of the bleared small-paned windows, and marked a rumbling of approaching thunder quite unusual for the season. Once a terrific flash and peal shook the frail house to its foundations, but the whisperer never seemed to notice it. Killing sheep was kind of more fun, but do you know, it ain't quite satisfying. Queer how a craving gets a hold of you. And as you love the almighty young man, don't tell nobody. But I swear to God, that picture began to make me hungry for victuals. I couldn't raise her by. Here, sit still. What's ailing you? I didn't do nothing. Only wondered how twould be if I did. They say meat makes blood and flesh and gives you a new life. So I wondered if twould make a man live longer. Twas more the same. But the whisperer never continued. The interruption was not produced by my fright, nor by the rapidly increasing storm amidst whose fury I was presently to open my eyes on a smoky solitude of blackened ruins. It was produced by a simple, though somewhat unusual, happening. The book lay flat between us, with the picture staring repulsively upward. As the old man whispered the words, more the same, a tiny splattering impact was heard, and something showed on the yellow paper of the upturned volume. I thought of the rain of a leaky roof, but rain is not red. 
On the butcher's shop of the Aztec cannibals, a small red splattering glistened picturesquely, lending vividness to the horror of the engraving. The old man saw it, and stopped whispering even before my expression of horror made it necessary. Saw it, and glanced quickly toward the door of the room he had left an hour before. I followed his glance, and beheld just above us, on the loose plaster of the ancient ceiling, a large irregular spot of wet crimson, which seemed to spread even as I viewed it. I did not shriek or move, but merely shut my eyes. A moment later came the titanic thunderbolt of thunderbolts blasting that accursed house of unutterable secrets, and bringing the oblivion which alone saved my mind. And there we go. One of H.P. Lovecraft's best stories, and one that doesn't drop the N-bomb. That brings us to the end of another episode of the Channel AB3 podcast. Hope you had as much fun as I did. And now, here's Miss Sherry with the credits. Late Bloomer was written by Maz and Leeds, also known as Maria Protopapadaki-Smith. It was read by Aiko Van Wingerden. Music was Fantasy Motion by Alexander Nakarada and is licensed under a Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. The Picture in the House was written by H.P. Lovecraft. It was read by Glenn Halstrom, also known as Smokestack Jones for LibriVox. Opening podcast theme was by Josh Bruno. Closing podcast theme was by Nicholas Gasparini. Our unpaid scientific advisor is Adam J. Thaxton. The credits were read by Miss Sherry, also known as Al's fiance. Email us at ab3 at channelab3.com or follow us on Twitter at channelab3. Please consider supporting the podcast via recurring donations of 99 cents, 4.99 or 9.99 a month via the link on our Anchor FM site. Reviews really help more people find the show. Please consider giving us one at the podcast service of your choice. And now, let's have Alexander Nakarada play us out 